Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to our continuing series on the second half of world history. This is podcast number 20. In podcast number 19, I reviewed the dire situation of the German economy, specifically put it into real human terms with what I read out of Erngard Hunt's book on Hitler's Mountain. I then got into the discussion about the background all the way back to the infancy of Adolf Hitler. From there, much of that information also was derived from an additional book called Hitler, The Pathology of Evil by George Victor. I ended podcast number 19 by reviewing the two applications that Adolf Hitler made to the art school in downtown Vienna, Austria, that he had hoped to be able to accept him so he could begin as an art student. Again, he was rejected both times. In podcast number 20 now, we're going to find that Adolf Hitler isn't quite done with thinking that an education might be in his future. And then I'll be looking into, sadly, unbelievably sadly, what will be one of Adolf Hitler's unfortunate gifts, and that is in oratory skills, the ability to publicly speak. So as we begin now, we're looking again, the art school rejected him the first time, the second time the art school also rejected him. However, in his denial letter, he they, the art school did recommend that perhaps he try to apply to the School of Engineering. We don't know what Hitler's reaction was, other than perhaps he was dejected once again that he was not able to get into the art school. But he obviously had enough gumption and felt, we might say at least initially, confident to put and assemble an application of admit, for admission to the School of Engineering. Unlike the art school, there were a lot of common denominators between the art school's application and the School of Engineering. But unlike the art school that asked for samples of the applicant's artwork, in this case with Adolf Hitler in the School of Engineering, the School of Engineering asked for all applicants who made the first cut, which Hitler did, to assemble at a, loca- at a particular location on a set date and time. And the students were brought into a room, and each, was, each applicant was seated at a desk that had all of the same drawing instruments, such as might, we might call today mechanical pencils and rulers and erasers, etc. All of them were to draw to the best of their ability what was in front of them. And they wouldn't be exposed to what was in front of them until everybody was, was seated, the timer be, was, was started, and then in this room, the students were told to look forward and curtains were drawn 
over that were covering windows, and the windows showed part of the city's skyscrapers, the landscape we might call, or the cityscape. So with that, all of the applicants began to start drawing what they saw in front of them to the best of their ability. All the students, we don't know when Hitler finished, whether he raced the clock, whether he was finished early, we don't know. But we do know that he was denied admission to the School of Engineering. It's not because what he drew was unrecognizable. It's not that what he drew was so bad that they really couldn't even identify which building was which. They could identify the buildings. And I can only imagine how cold the admissions officer's blood ran when they looked at Adolf Hitler's piece of evidence of his application, part of his application. Because again, the buildings were recognizable. But every one of the buildings that Adolf Hitler recreated was either in the process of getting destroyed or was already destroyed. It was an understanding that Adolf Hitler had in his own twisted mind that the, that the admissions officers of the School of Engineering weren't about to try to untangle. Most likely, we would assume that Adolf Hitler knew he was going to be denied. Whatever it might have been, he gave up on ever applying, to our knowledge, he ever applying on any school for any degree of study. It would be ironic, though, that at the time that Adolf Hitler was denied to the art school and the School of Engineering, it would be at this time that rumbles were being felt throughout the continent of Europe that a war might be taking place between some larger countries or perhaps even some smaller ones as would turn out to be the case on July 28, 1914 when the massive Austro-Hungarian Empire declared war on the relatively small country of Serbia. Hitler enlisted in the army despite the fact that he was truly horrified at the sight of blood, he became a runner or a messenger, a courier, helping or assisting in the German army behind German lines. That's what gave him a taste of war and a taste of politics. He was significantly injured enough to hospitalize him, but not enough to permanently keep him out of the war. So he remained hospitalized as he attempted to try to recuperate from his injuries when he was horrified to find out that the German government had sued for peace to France and Great Britain and that the war was coming to a close. That was Hitler's involvement in what became known as the Great War and eventually World War I, which I already covered in prior podcasts. So it is towards the end of Hitler's involvement, towards the end of World War I, when Hitler is injured, hospitalized, and that's when he is horrified to learn and is so angry that the Germans, as Hitler interpreted, sold out to the French 
British and American governments. This is what drew him upon leaving the hospital as Germany was licking its wounds from the devastating and humiliating defeat that they agreed to sign in the Treaty of Versailles. That's when Hitler was striving, struggling to try to find acceptance or connection with anybody of his like mind that was so distraught and angry with the Weimar government. In other words, Hitler was looking to connect with some political affiliation. Being in Germany and walking the streets of Germany, Hitler had plenty of choices as there were over 40 individual political parties in Germany. The one that drew him was a relatively new political party called the National Socialist Workers' Party. That's the name of it in English. In German, its acronym is N-A-Z-I, of course, Nazi, with their symbol, the swastika. But to dispel the myth, Hitler did not form the Nazi party. He was definitely in on the ground floor as he was its registered seventh member, but he did not found it, and he wasn't even a co-founder. But as he became more familiar with the political tenets of the Nazi party, the more he learned and the more he liked. As the party grew in size and started to bring in funds, they were able to organize groups of select members that would become known as the stormtroopers, whose use of terror and intimidation was relatively common. Another reason that Hitler joined this particular political party, as well as we'll find out how many millions more, was because it guaranteed members food, clothing, and pay. As rudimentary as it was in the beginning, it snowballed with the more members that, it, that joined forces that joined the political party and brought in the meager amounts of money that they had. Collectively, the Nazi party was growing to be quite well funded as the early 20s wore on. It was within his involvement with the Nazi party that the leadership began to notice that Adolf Hitler had a knack. No, maybe even a knack isn't a good word. It was even more than an ability. He went, as some put, which to me is a bit of an extreme, but I don't disagree with the, with the word used, that some people thought that Hitler's oratory skills were almost more of a gift than anything else. And because of that, he was invited to be the chief spokesperson for the Nazi party. Now, this wasn't just an honorary title that he simply put a symbol of on his shirt that he could fan in front of other people. This was going to become a significant investment of his own free time. This was going to require a heck of a lot of work, a lot of preparation, because the Nazi party, again, competing against over 40 other political parties in the Weimar Republic of Germany, he had a lot of competition. And if they were going to try to win more seats in the Reichstag, in the German parliament, then he had to, for lack of a better way to phrase it, outspeak the spokespersons of the other parties.
What's more is that oftentimes these political spokespeople were given the opportunity to speak on a, generally on a weekend day as a typical Saturday or a Sunday. And they would only be given a relatively short amount of time to speak, depending upon the number of other representatives that wanted to address the crowds. So when he showed up, he would be told what his time limit was. He would be asked ahead of time for an outline of a speech, or at least even the title. And when Hitler began to speak, rather than me attempt to try to paraphrase just what the effect was of Hitler's speaking ability on the German public, I'm going to go back once again to Ermgard Hunt's book on Hitler's mountain. And I'm going to read the end of page 29 to the beginning of page 31. It's relatively short because there's a huge picture on page 30. But I would like all of my listeners to hear the background on the mindset of the German people as this, quote-unquote, funny little man with the interesting mustache would address the public. She begins... Anyone who promised economic stability would capture the nation's mind and soul as well. Of all the Weimar politicians, only Hitler understood fully that playing up patriotism and making false promises to every interest group would garner a following. And most important, perhaps, he realized that instilling fear of a vaguely defined enemy, the, quote, conspirators of world Jewry, end quote, would bring a suspicious and traumatized people, including my own mother and father, to his side. Mother documented all of her tiny contributions that she made to the Nazi party. In the small cardboard accounting booklet, in which she traced every expenditure of her incredibly frugal life. In December 1930, she entered the purchase of a specific dollar amount for a ticket to the Nazi party's Christmas event and a contribution of a little china pitcher, perhaps for an auction, which cost her more money. Over the next two years, irregular contributions added up significantly with even a personal donation to Adolf Hitler himself. She and her cohorts were part of the jubilant crowds when showman Hitler staged his displays of marching stormtroopers surrounded by seas of swastika flags, but they were certainly not the source of the large sums needed to secure his dictatorship. That sum and support came from wealthy interests that, equally scared of communism and democracy, hoped to be able to control this strange little man. And that's the end of what I'm reading on page the top of page 31. I'd like to stress again the fact that Ermgard Hunt not only admitted that her mother gave donations to the Nazi party and specifically to Adolf Hitler himself, that is not a bent of her memory. She's not confusing things. Because in that book, 
is a picture of her mother's checkbook. And in there, it specifically says Hitler and another entry, Nazi Party. Mind you, I also took a look of that myself to know that that was in her possession, that that was indeed her mother's. And what I'm trying to stress here is remember that Ermgard Hunt and her mother and her sister remember that at one of the many Christmases of that they received, if they received any gifts at all during the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s. Yes, I know you're thinking Great Depression was the 1930s, not the 1920s. No, in the United States, you're correct. Worldwide, the Great Depression plagued almost all countries around the world immediately following World War I. The United States was arguably the sole country to truly have a roaring 20s because our economy was roaring after the First World War came to a close. For more on that and what happened that we eventually crashed into what became known as the Great Depression, I encourage you to listen to my second half of American History podcast, which I am in the process of recording. But remember, too, that when she says that and stresses the money that her mother donated, the fact that, again, her and her sister unbelievably pleasantly surprised that for Christmas they got an orange. And one of the true Christmas presents of that was that they could have the whole orange and didn't have to share it with anybody. For just a few minutes after she ate it, she would be devoid of the constant hunger pains that she and her family constantly suffered. Ermgard Hunt wrote of her mother's cohorts, meaning many, many other people that also made the contributions. And yet another account from a family where a mother saw her two children, her brother and her, her son and her daughter, coming up the steps into the house after the rudimentary school day where they attempted to learn. And the little brother was crying. And his sister, the mother's daughter, was so embarrassed. And when the mother figured out why the child was crying, she actually said a prayer of thanks. Why would the mother be praying thank you to her God when her two children are embarrassed and the son is crying? Because somebody in the school noticed that the little boy had lice. That's why he was crying out of embarrassment. That's why his sister was crying because she was shunned. Why would the mother give thanks to their, her children having parasites on their skin. I ask you to pause it if you truly would like to think about it. I would hope that none of my listeners could possibly guess the answer. Why do I hope nobody could guess it? Because I would hope nobody would ever be in the same situation that this family and countless millions more in continental Europe, specifically Germany, found themselves in the 1920s and 30s. The mother gave thanks that her child had lice. Why? Because lice is protein. Lice is something that can be eaten. Please know the mindset due to the extreme, extreme poverty that these German families were in 
suffering from the degrading Treaty of Versailles, enacting them with the responsibility, financial responsibility to repay the war debt from World War I, the war reparations to France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and England, that this was the economic dire straits that they found themselves. So yes, when a man, a funny little man, as Ermgard Hunt referred to Adolf Hitler, got up on the podium and started speaking, yes, people were willing to listen. But what Ermgard Hunt isn't able to capture is the real analysis, sadly, of the reason why Hitler's oratory skills were sadly so effective. And that's what I'm going to lay out now. I'm going to run through it very quickly, and then I'm going to go and unpack the five central tenets that Adolf Hitler somehow knew to capitalize on. Remember, listeners, that there is a reason why in the average community college and universities speech classes that in the textbooks, as we headed into the 21st century, things changed. I understand that. But in my speech communications class, chapter one was on the history of communication throughout world history, of course. And it focused on the likes of some of the most gifted speakers in all of world history. Cicero of Rome, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and yes, believe it or not, Adolf Hitler also had his own section, despite the fact that what he was speaking was so vile and full of hatred. The authors could not ignore the contributions that he made to forensics, in other words, to the art of public speaking. So when Hitler was told that the Nazi party would be up next to speak, Hitler was nowhere to be found. When he did arrive, he had nothing to hand the individuals orchestrating the speeches because he didn't have a speech planned. Before they could ask him why, he ran up the podium, waited for a minute, yelled a bunch of disconnected topics to the crowd, and then he ran with one of them. Now, when I ran through it that fast, I'd be willing to bet that none of my listeners can figure out what is so quote-unquote gifted about that. Now let's go back and unpack it. First off, remember that these people, the vast majority who he's going to be speaking to, are unemployed and starving. Economically, they might have lost everything. So when the, Hitler was smart enough to know that if he was, let's say, the 15th speaker out of 25 that were scheduled for that afternoon and early evening, if he's number 15, that means 14 people were already ahead of him droning on about how they would represent the people better than the politician in front of them and behind them. Hitler knows that. So he waited a full 10 minutes before he even got on the stage. He wanted that stage, that podium, empty. Because what happened? The people who were almost comatose from sitting still listening to those speakers before him now became agitated. They started to turn in their chairs, or if they were standing, they were talking to people. Hey, where's the next representative? This is supposed to be the Nazi party. That, that, that little man is supposed to be speaking. Where is he? He was getting the blood pressure going. He was pumping them up. Not necessarily in a positive way, but he wanted to wake them up. When he arrived, he didn't have a speech planned. Of course he didn't. 
because he truly did not know what he was going to speak on. Well, wait a minute, Chris, you say. There are recordings of him making unbelievably powerful speeches and awing the crowd. Yeah, because the crowd told him what he wanted, what they wanted to hear. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. But that's the reason, number two, he never had a speech planned. Three, when he got on stage, I just quickly rambled through that he waited one full minute. Listeners, I'm telling you, I've, I've been public speaking for a quarter century now. You have no idea, unless you public speak as well, how difficult it is to stand in front of an audience and be, wait for your cue to begin. And then once you're given that cue, the fastest thing you want to do is open up your mouth and immediately get into your speech because it'll begin to calm you down, especially and hopefully if you're familiar with what you're speaking about. To wait one full minute, I don't know if I could handle the blood pressure of staring at my audience for an entire minute. Why did Hitler do it? Because that crowd that was once up and moving around and agitated now became silent and were staring right at him. Then he yelled the topics, the blasted Jews, the damn French, the tyrannical Russians. Depending upon where he was speaking in the country of Germany, Different factions of people aggravated Germans in different ways. So while on the eastern side of Germany, the Russians or the Soviets aggravated the Germans and angered them, that might not have affected the Germans on the opposite side of the country. He was tailoring his speech to find out which subject, which topic caused the crowd to roar. If he mentioned the Jews and there was no response, Maybe just a slight murmur, he yelled something else. The French, the Treaty of Versailles, still no big response. Those blasted Soviets he would try. And then when the crowd roared, Hitler was given his speech. But wait a minute, you say. If he didn't have that speech written, how did he know what he was going to talk about? That's where you go back to Ermgard Hunt's book and others that I've read like that. Hitler didn't need a specific outline of what the Nazi party was going to do. He wasn't going to bore them with that nomenclature. He wasn't going to bore them with that specific, those specifics. Rather, as Ermgard Hunt said, he, when the moment he found out that in this particular crowd, the Soviet Union is what angered the crowd in front of him, then he panhandled to that, and he decried how bad and how evil and backwards the Soviet Union was and how much better the Germans are. Again, as she said, he knew to trump up patriotism. But then again, he also knew how to sow the seeds of fear within those speeches. Think about the audience that's done. The audience that's left behind when Hitler completes his speech. Number one, they couldn't get him off the podium. The moment they tried to tell him, the moderators told him, hey, your time's up. The crowd roared with disapproval. They wanted to hear him. Hitler just discounted all those speakers that might have the opportunity to come up behind him. Secondly, he is making them feel good by talking up their patriotism. And he is making them feel secure 
because he understands what makes them afraid, what drives their fear, even if the fear was totally unfounded. Ladies and gentlemen, you might disagree with my analysis of the five central tenets that made Adolf Hitler such an unbelievably effective orator. But you can you can disagree again with my analysis all you want, but what you can't disagree with is that it moved millions of people to ultimately vote the Nazi party into office. In some near future podcasts, as we continue our discussion in world history, I will actually go over specific election results with you that can be easily confirmed online. And sadly, you will see just how effective this funny little man with the mustache was with his five central tenants that made for a very effective speech. Why don't I run into that right now and get on with it? Because we're still only in the early 20s. Adolf Hitler is going to take his speaking ability, and he's going to take it into a building, a building in southeastern Germany that I had the ability to visit twice to this very spot where Adolf Hitler was speaking. And he's going to take his, his speaking skills, and he's going to push them just a little too far. And that is going to land him, as we all know, in the slammer. So he's going to have to go to jail first. So what exactly did he do wrong? What did he say that was so wrong in what became known as the Beer Hall Putsch? That's what we'll begin with in the next podcast. So thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please go to my website and can contact me at C through www.ceconsella.com. Until the next time, have a great day. And thanks again for listening.